Great, thank you. So today I'm pleased to introduce our speaker. Our speaker is Jesse Irwin from Tendermint. And one thing that I grew to appreciate when I was working in the commercial world before I came to higher education was finding someone that could take a very technical topic and make it understandable. And I, I've seen a couple of her talks online and was able to, uh, to get a sense for that. And Jesse does a very good job of that. So this is, she's always the kind of person I sought out to explain things to me because they understood the technology, but they could make it very, very reasonable and understandable. Um, so I, I'm anxious to, uh, to hear her talk today, and we're very proud that she is here. She's got a, uh, a, a great background in security and privacy and has uh, been a prolific blogger and writer and presenter. She presents at most uh, conferences that you'll, you'll hear about in cybersecurity. So with that, I'll just turn it over to Jesse. Thank you so much, and thank you for inviting me. Um, I spent a little bit of time thinking about what I wanted to talk about today. I had a few options. Um, I work at Tendermint, so I could have talked to you about blockchains, but I don't really like talking about those. Don't tell my team I said that. Please cut that from the recording. <laughs> uh, what I really wanted to do was talk about something that's near and dear to my heart and something that is very much aligned with my research interests. Um, just to get started, I'll talk about myself a little bit so you can understand what I'm talking about, maybe get a little bit of background on bad jokes that I like to make. Um, this should be full of them. Um, I am currently head of security at Tenderman. So we are building some blockchain stuff that I'm not going to make anyone learn about in this talk. Um, it's fun, it's exciting. There are so many security challenges and programs and processes that I get to build. Um, that I have a little bit more fun than even I could have imagined when I started. Uh, but a lot of the love that I have for security came from my first security role um, on a security team when I was at 1Password. Um, I worked at 1Password for a while and we built a password manager, which meant that I was intimately familiar with everything that goes wrong uh, with passwords and why people hate them, love them, get them wrong, get them right, etc. Um, and from working with them, I also have had the opportunity to consult and advise um, some Fortune 500 companies um, and startups on security strategy. And that strategy has covered anything from usability to communications to building security programs and processes that actually work and make things happen. Um, some of my favorite research topics tend to be in the area of usability, design, um, user interaction. I think that what we put in front of users and the visual vocabulary that they have um, really does a lot to influence security outcomes. And it's also really overlooked um, quite a bit, especially um, when you tend to get in a team of a bunch of security engineers who want to talk about heavy lifting and protocols and doing all kinds of fancy sandboxing, which maybe is invisible to a user and doesn't give them an improvement that they understand. Um, I also am very much excited about education, behavior change, security economics, and even maturity because a lot of organizations in the world right now have never hired a security team or they don't even know where to start getting security into their business. And I'm not just talking about technology companies. I'm talking about manufacturing. I'm talking about aerospace. I'm talking about all of the nerds trying to put more computers in cars. 
everybody has a different threat model and everyone has a different need for security. And we need so many more people to figure out the intersection of where these things meet um, and to really help make them happen. Uh, the last thing I will make note of is I like to make terrible security puns and jokes. I don't like calling it two-factor authentication. I tend to call it two-raptor authentication, mostly because if you imagine two dinosaurs and all of these wires running after an attacker trying to steal your account and eating that attacker's face off instead of letting them in, makes security a little bit more exciting. This might also be a side effect of watching way too many Jurassic Park movies, though. So, fair point, I might make a few dinosaur jokes. Um, here's some of what we will cover today. So I'll talk a little bit about the intersection of people, passwords, and some other authentication things like those two raptors. Um, I'll talk a little bit about security expectations, both from engineers and technical people and our non-expert users, and then some of the realities of the situations and the use cases that we face, especially on the authentication front. Um, I'll talk quite a bit about obstacles, especially for our non-experts and our non-technical people, whether they are third graders trying to keep their homework from getting stolen or the old lady gang down the street just trying to order everything they can from Amazon. Um, there are a lot of different people from all over the planet with different approaches and different experiences with technology. And those experiences are cases that we really need to think more about um, very holistically when we're approaching some of these security engineering tasks, especially in areas of identity and access management. And then the last thing I will cover um, is maybe some solutions or some things that you can do in this room and in your education um, to think about these big giant obstacles that we face and to start chipping away at them. Because the real, the secret to security isn't that um, we are all aiming around with our silver bullets and trying to knock big problems out in one fell swoop. The thing that makes us successful is incremental progress and really chipping away at things. So um, to get started, I have to kind of give a little bit of an overview of what's wrong and what the security problem is on the planet. Um, that turns into a two-factor authentication problem. So one of the biggest problems that I see happen, and one of the biggest problems that a lot of the people in my, um, in my industry and in my area, in the Bay Area, face is trying to solve password problems. Password reuse is one of the biggest threats to the stability and the security of the internet. Almost everyone I have ever met who never took a computer class or never took a security class um, always starts out the conversation when they hear that I know hackers or that I'm near hackers or hackers might be somewhere. They say, oh, you know what? I have the perfect way to not be hacked. I have this one really good password I use everywhere. Let me tell you what it is and you'll see how good it is. No, this is awful. This is terrible. This is a huge problem because the second I say, oh, now I have your password. Let me go uh, steal all the money out of your mortgage account. Let's go wreak some havoc on your credit cards. Let's go rifle through your email and find out all of your dirtiest secrets. People realize, oh, Maybe I shouldn't do that, but 
that kind of stinks. It's kind of reactive, but that's how things are right now. Um, what really stinks about this is from an engineering point of view, especially if you are defense-minded, um, you're on the blue team, you see lots more automation attacks. If anyone in this room has ever heard of a rainbow table, if you have had to play with a dictionary attack, the computers are winning hard. Like they are coming after us. It is not fun to try to get ahead of all these computers in this automation because the automation is only getting better and our humans aren't improving so much. So there are some things we know about people and passwords, which are really the first step of this problem. Uh, people really prefer passwords to be short. They like them to be memorable. They like them to be personal. Um, there's a really great story from the New York Times. It's a little bit heart-wrenching as well, um, but in 2014, a reporter um, essentially did an investigative piece on why passwords are a mess. And something that the reporter stumbled on was that in the wake of the 9-11 attacks, there were businesses that suddenly had entire fleets of employees that were gone or weren't coming back to work or they just couldn't find. And part of the incident response uh, in this particular case was calling the families of the survivors or calling the friends of people who had been missing and asking for clues about what was important to these people in their lives. Questions like, what is your girlfriend's name? What is your dog's name? What is your favorite food? That has been one of my passwords once. Things like this tend to be the material for passwords because it's right at the front of a human being's brain and that's just what our brain can do in terms of computing power. If we want our brains to memorize something that's 75 characters long, random, unique, beautifully generated from some amazing source of entropy, that's gonna take a lot of work. And if we want that for anywhere from 75 to 189 different logins and account credentials on the internet, that's a lot more work too. Seems like maybe, I don't know, the system is set up against us. Another thing that's really interesting about what we know about people and passwords is that there is this awful habit um, where businesses and different companies like to force pretty common password resets. So every six weeks, right at the point when you have perfectly memorized exactly the password you need to get your day started and to log into that meeting exactly at 9 a.m. when you've had four sips of coffee, it's gone. And then you have to start all over. Something I thought was really cool is there's one situation where this one very smart guy essentially looked at that process and said, you know what, I hate this password, but I'm gonna use it for a goal. I'm gonna do something cool with it. So this one particular guy, Mauricio, said, okay, what's important to me? I'm going through a divorce in my life. You know, I probably smoke a little bit more than I should. I should stop smoking. I should go work out more. I should build better habits. So every six weeks, he changed his password to something he wanted to accomplish. He was in the middle of a divorce. He was like, all right, I guess my work password this time is forgive her. Six weeks, 10 to 12 separate authentication points a day. That's a lot of thinking about forgiving the woman that he was divorcing. 
six weeks later, he's like, all right, go to the gym, stop smoking. That's what I'm going to do this time. Thought about it 10 to 12 times a day. And suddenly, hey, he doesn't really want to smoke anymore. How'd that happen? These are great examples of what humans can do and how people want to use their passwords, but also great examples of friction points with what computers need and what humans need. Um, another thing that really, really stinks, as I've mentioned, is that people are really highly likely to reuse passwords. If you've never heard of a password manager before, how are you going to know that it exists? How are you going to find it? How are you going to even figure out how to use it correctly? If you search for it the first time, you read the documentation and all you start seeing is a bunch of engineering gibberish. Definitely not a fun situation. So here's some stuff we know about passwords. As I mentioned, they're made for machines, not really human beings. Rainbow tables, dictionary attacks, shock collisions, there's all kinds of things that can go wrong with them. And what a password needs to withstand a machine isn't something that's gonna stick in our heads easily. Um, another thing I think about a lot, and it has a little bit of fire next to it, is that passwords are really awful on mobile devices. I mean, who in their right mind wants to switch between, I don't know, three to five different keyboards to get your upper cases, your lower cases, all of your special characters, like none of this is fun, especially when all you really need to do is get into your email so that you can get that address from your email so you can put it in your maps and not be 10 minutes late for something. Like that's a pretty common problem where we're all rushing around trying to accomplish a task, not really so focused on the 27 security hurdles we need to jump so that we are doing it safely and appropriately. Um, another thing we know about passwords and password tools is that even the experts who use password managers don't necessarily use them correctly all the time. If you've been around enough of my people who are like, get your password manager, use it, don't reuse passwords, most of them don't actually practice what they preach. What two wonderful researchers found in 2015 was essentially that Experts and non-experts have the same set of practices for using a password manager. They tend to try to make sure everything is strong and unique and random and beautiful, but there's stuff that goes wrong. A lot of people, experts and non-experts alike, really hate it when they're using this tool and their database looks ugly. It doesn't make them feel good when the whole point of the thing was supposed to organize things, make them easier to use, make them pretty, like maybe resolve some feelings of fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And then you log in and there's one or two that are always weak or they're always, you know, some high risk, low character limit password that you can't do anything about because the set of requirements that your bank gave you or that the website that you're working with gave you doesn't fit the expectation or the need that an audit feature in that password manager set. Uh, the last thing that we really know about passwords is just that they're not enough. Um, Multi-factor authentication is a good way to shore up some defenses for passwords. Having a second thing that you need to use to get into your accounts 
definitely makes it harder for attackers to get in, whether it's something you have, something you are, something you know or you think you know, or you figure out how to know again. <laughs> um, but even though it's pretty great, it hasn't really crossed the chasm from all of the security folks to everyone else who uses computers. It's not even necessarily presented to regular people in a way that is understandable. They know it exists, but they don't know exactly what it exists for. And that kind of stinks. One of the things that is kind of shocking and disappointing, but maybe also a little bit of a cry um, or call to action, is that as of January 2018, less than 10% of people who use who have Google accounts actually use two-factor authentication. If you look up any articles from when this came out, half of the articles say, oh my God, the world is falling down. 90% of people don't protect their accounts on the internet. And then the other half are like me, are like, okay, we have 10%. How do we get it to 15? How do we get it to 25? This is good, we have 10. How do we scale? What's going wrong? Why don't people like this? And how do we move them forward? So that's where we are here. Um, if you listen to some security folks talk, uh, two-factor authentication is kind of a silver bullet that's supposed to just take care of all the bad stuff that could possibly happen to the average person on the internet. If you're a really good security person or you have done your homework, you know that it's actually really messy and it's what we've got right now. We should probably be using it instead of ignoring it, but it doesn't do all of the fancy, exciting, you know, hacker defeating things that most people will tell you that it does. So we could talk a little bit more about what we know about people and human beings, um, something that uh, is the topic of a great research paper that came from a Ucinix conference, is that the average person is actually not really capable of identifying what best practices and security look like. Um, there are a lot of reasons that this happens. Some people watch a lot of spy movies. Some people pay way too much attention to whatever somebody said about is going on in China with the, who knows what's going on with the cyber hacking on the news these days. But in reality, most people have never had to sit through a single class at any point during their education or their adult life where they had to engage with security topics and security practices. They've never been exposed to this stuff. And when we know that people have never been exposed to it, the expectation, at least in the mind of some security folks, is we really have to get into education mode. And we really have to think about how to present this in a way that is appealing and that makes sense to people who are going to think that we are speaking in some crazy encrypted language they've never heard of before. We know that people are less likely to make good security decisions uh, when they are scared or when they're rushed, especially if they only have five minutes to log into a thing and then try to run across the office, run across campus, go pick up their kid from daycare. There are things in people's lives that happen where security is important, but it also tends to maybe be a bit more of a problem than it is a solution, or they don't understand where the benefits of behavior change outweigh all of the other crap that they have to deal with when they're just trying to accomplish a normal task. 
The last thing, um, and it's something I think about quite a bit, is that the average human is pretty aware of specific attack words like phishing and malware and I guess hardware implants if anyone's been watching the news lately, but not really so much when it comes to figuring out defenses and ways to get out of bad situations. When we compare this to some of what we know about two-factor authentication and adding this extra layer of defense to accounts, it gets a little messy. Uh, we know that two-factor is an extra layer of security, and it can make it much more expensive for an attacker to break into an account. This is great because instead of an attacker just running a rainbow table or running a dictionary attack or scraping the last list of 378 billion passwords that got dumped, they have to come up with an authentication bypass. Authentication bypasses are hard. They require extra technical skills. And quite frankly, like, you get terrified and a little excited when you see somebody trying to pull one off in your system. But it's a net win from a defender's point of view because our goal is always to raise the cost of a security attack and remove opportunity for silly things to work and to hurt people. Um, something else that I think about quite a bit is two-factor also requires proactive planning. It's one thing if you're in an enterprise setting um, at work, for example, when people lock themselves out of their devices, I force them to fire up a video chat, prove that they're the, who they actually should be, and then I can turn it off and let them back in and make them set it back up. Recovery is not that hard because I'm the head of security. It's my job to make sure the people who need to be working get in and the people who don't need to be working don't get in. But when we think about this in terms of what the average person's doing, the average person doesn't realize that they have to be their own chief technology officer, their own CISO, um, and figure out all of these external things they've probably never thought about or been exposed to before in their lives. The last thing uh, to think about too is that all forms of two-factor aren't really created equal. So I can start complaining about um, SMS two-factor, meaning those six-digit codes that come flying across your phone and land into your text message inbox. They, when we started rolling them out in 2013 um, as a reaction to some really high-profile account thefts, and I think there was an even a really ugly, nasty iCloud hack that really drove adoption of this particular security feature, when that happened, we were like, yes, cell phones work. People have them, this is easy, it's reliable. People don't necessarily have to have a smartphone or worry about a data plan. Let's do this. Except, users think that maybe that code protects them from having their accounts fished. Now what we're seeing is that the attackers are starting to fish the six-digit SMS number away from people at a scale that's kind of unbelievable and a little bit scary at times. Um, people think they're protected and they're actually just as wide open for it in other ways that they could never expect. Something else that really stinks, uh, especially on the SMS front, is that it relies on an insecure delivery method. So we have to trust this SS7 thing that goes on among all of the cell phone towers and networks, 
but it kind of doesn't do the thing that we want it to. We've known it's been vulnerable for a long time and there's not really anyone running to fix it and make it less so. As a consequence, um, SIM cards get stolen from accounts quite a bit. And it's actually been something that has become so prolific that it's almost an opportunistic attack now. Attackers can carry this out with automation at a very high speed uh, and very quickly. They tend to also do it to people who own large amounts of cryptocurrency, something that I am always thinking about given what I do for work. Uh, but if you're using SMS for two-factor, it's essentially not going to withstand a targeted attack. There are entire populations of people who've had to learn this the hard way and who don't have better options. Also, on a business front, it kind of sucks because if you have specific accounts that have to be shared, for example, up until recently, a Twitter account that has to be shared across an entire marketing team, you can't use it. Your account goes unprotected. That kind of stinks. So then a whole bunch of people got super excited and were like, we're gonna start generating these codes and these apps. Okay, some cool stuff happened. Makes it easier to share accounts. I theoretically could take the marketing team, make them all get their phones out, open up their authenticator app, and take a snapshot of the same seed, those QR codes uh, that so many companies have implemented into what they're rolling out for 2FA. That's not so bad. And if somebody goes offline or your machine or your phone is offline, but your computer's not, that's cool. The number still somehow syncs with the server. There's, there's some magical math um, algorithm thinking going on back there. It's not so bad, except people like to change their phones a lot. Like I heard there's this company every September, they like to roll out new devices. And if you just jumped on the 2FA bandwagon, Maybe you didn't know that you either had to print these codes out or store them somewhere safe that you have to plan for or do some other ungodly who knows what solution to make sure you don't lose this thing and get locked out of your accounts. You're in a mess. Uh, you could potentially like lose access to a whole bunch of data depending on whether an account fails open or fails closed. If it fails open, uh-oh. <laughs> If it fails closed, that is a whole other form of uh-oh if you're talking about an account that is where you back up all of your devices or an account where you keep all of the photographs that are important to your day-to-day -day life and your memories and your family. Also, those backup codes can be a problem because if you talk to a group of 10 security people, we will probably be ready to have a tug of war five on five on whether we think that those codes should be saved in a password manager or synced in a cloud somewhere, or if they need to be printed in triplicate, distributed in different places across your house and probably in your bank safe deposit box and maybe over at your mom's house somewhere. There's no good answer and we can't really come to an agreement on what might be best here because everyone has a different threat model and one specific recommendation doesn't necessarily work. We have this other thing. Um, if you've ever heard of a YubiKey or you've seen a hardware device um, for two-factor, they're very exciting. I like them quite a bit. You can't fish them. I love it when you can't fish things, especially 
because it means that I don't have to worry about a whole bunch of phishing attacks happening in my environment if I have this rolled out. On the enterprise front, we've seen some really exciting things happen. Um, if you have followed some of the different case studies for companies using these hardware keys, um, and one specific place that I'm thinking of, Google, they rolled out hardware keys and have had no account theft phishing or specific takeovers because you just can't get past this little blue piece of plastic. That's pretty magical if you are a defender because instead of having to run 20 to 200 incidents a week where you're resetting accounts and making sure that data wasn't inappropriately accessed or you don't have an attacker somewhere trying to pivot around all of your corporate information, you'll get to focus on things that are way more fun. Except when we talk about this on the consumer front, not every website actually allows for a hardware key. Um, in some communities, especially if you have ever worked with activists, these things are expensive. A $20 security key to someone who lives in a country where people, you know, have $7 a month to live off of, that is a luxury. And that is something that is definitely an obstacle to adoption in many places that would need these devices the most. Uh, there was a really interesting study specifically a user study that came out this year um, during Black Hat, where a researcher did a two-phase trial where they essentially wanted to test what might be going on with the adoption of YubiKeys. And not with a whole bunch of nerds who are like ready to have a whole keychain of 20 of them, but people who, you know, might have heard about it, been exposed to it once or twice. Phase one of the study essentially asked participants to try using documentation and to use website demos to enroll in two-factor authentication without any guidance from a human being. Literally no one successfully could do this. They got stuck in many, many places. So phase two of this study was improving the documentation. And that's when things got interesting. When the documentation actually worked and people could enroll, the researchers found out a whole bunch of things. Specifically, most people still really didn't care about this hardware key because they were afraid of losing it. That's something I worry about all the time. It's like this big. And I know to back it up, but is your regular person going to back it up? Probably not. Who wants to spend $40 on two tiny little plastic things if they don't quite understand the value proposition and importance of having it around anyway. Not gonna happen. That's like, that's lots of Starbucks, come on. Um, on the other side of that, people had very specific feelings about security. And these are feelings that we have seen time and time again um, in research about why people don't use encrypted messaging and why people face certain obstacles to even improving security habits. Most of the people in the study felt that they were personally immune to some of these average risks on the internet. Like, wait, what? How did you get that personal immunity? And can I also get some? Please and thank you. Another thing that happened uh, was that a lot of the people who eventually figured out how to use these keys said, well, you know, I think that I have a system that works well enough for me, and I just don't think that that security device is going to provide me any value. 
That was especially important because when you take those things and combine them with the fear of being locked out, the users in this study had a really good understanding of very specific risks that would make their lives difficult. Forget all of this automation, forget the hackers and their hoodies and their outfits in the coffee shop, forget whatever's going on on NCIS Cyber. Like, I just want to be able to get into my account and I don't want to have to worry about it. That is a really valid way of looking at this, but it's also a valid, it's also an argument that a lot of security engineers are quick to say, oh, well, that's because you're dumb. You should know better talking crap about users when they have good reasons for not wanting to do something. It's not how we make security better. And it also leaves a whole host of super interesting engineering problems on the table. Um, there's a couple of other things that are also really interesting with the hardware keys specifically. If you're an Android user, you can use them with your mobile devices. You can use them with your tablets. You can do anything you want to. Tough luck if you like lots of people, uh, like your iPhones and your iPads. There's not really a lot of interoperability between all of these places. And even the companies who have attempted to make these devices work um, on like Bluetooth low energy frequencies, nah, not reliable enough. So, okay, I talked about a whole bunch of stuff that we kind of know about all these different flavors of two-factor and how they're not really created equal. But at this point, let's be, let's be real. Getting this right for the average person is kind of like having to do a super intricate fan dance with about 35 to 80 different steps depending on what your risk landscape and your threat model look like. And you have to not miss a single step because if you do, stuff's gonna go wrong. Even if you got everything right though, there's still a whole bunch of decision-making that happens on the part of engineers um, and system designers and interaction thinkers that can still lead to absolute disaster if we all do our homework the right way. They also happen to give us lots of fun engineering problems and use cases to think about. So I talked a little bit about accounts failing open and not closed, but your average user has no way of knowing what's gonna happen until it's too late. They're either going to figure out that the account fails open because they call customer support and they can get their data back, or they're gonna figure out that it fails closed because, oh crap, their phone got stolen and every picture of their child, who is now five years old, um, is gone forever because they can't log into their iCloud account. That's a problem. Uh, people definitely don't wanna be locked out of accounts, but consumers also tend to prefer trusting companies to hold on to their data uh, more than they trust themselves. It's why a lot of people skip spending extra money on getting a local hard drive um, so that they can back up their machines when they're already shelling out two to $3,000 for a fancy computer. Um, we know things like phone numbers were never designed to be private. So that's not really great on the SMS front if we're thinking about opportunistic attacks and we're thinking about how quickly the automation um, on the robocalling front we see happen all the time, but what it looks like when attackers en masse really decide that they are going to have a field day behind the scenes and start stealing phone numbers, popping SIM devices, and figuring out funny ways to move some of the ill-gotten gains that they make um, through different places.
Another thing that is a huge problem is that even if someone in a remote place happens to get everything right, there are areas in the world where it takes 10 minutes to get a text message, but that SMS six digit code is only good for two minutes. So how are you supposed to actually do the thing you need to do to protect yourself if you're in an area where you don't have infrastructure that supports things that work the way that they currently do? Sometimes it does, yeah. Um, authenticators can be really smart because with some of the algorithms and the work that has happened to help keep that secret on the server synced with a device that's not connected, um, they really reduce like collisions and errors and bad things from happening. But they can also fall out of sync really easily if you haven't been able to connect your device reliably for some time too. Um, there are also issues where sometimes when you look at the current state of SMS two-factor, it's like the people who designed it think that we human beings don't get on planes and go places or ever leave the country. For it to work, we have to sit in one place all the time like a duck and not move. That doesn't seem very exciting to me. Like I need technology that is going to be able to handle me running across the world whenever I feel about it and like dragging all of my friends with me. And I mentioned also that people don't like backing up computers, much less their codes. So things like backup codes, things like backup YubiKeys, not gonna happen. And there's not a good way to even flip people from reactive, I've never learned about security mode, to proactive, I am going to disaster plan my way through every scenario that could have ever happened in the whole world between me and this computer. If you do know any people who are like that, I am hiring, by the way. <laughs> um, some other things that can totally go wrong, even if the users get it right, not having a smartphone means that those uh, code generators probably aren't gonna be useful to you. Um, we have the argument all day long about whether we should store those codes in a password manager. Full disclosure, I do, but I also helped build the password manager, so I'm pretty secure in that decision. But if you get enough of us around the table, we will start having wars about two-factor authentication and two-step verification. And this is just not fun and also not how I want some of the smartest minds in the world to be thinking about the future of making this stuff work better. We don't need to get caught up in huge, giant vocabulary lesson quiz war things when we are just trying to get our brains thinking smarter and better and sharing experiences. Um, I've also mentioned that user experience is a problem, but real talk, if you have to switch between an authenticator app, an app that you're trying to log in on, where you have a super long password, maybe the person who created the app didn't even allow pasting in that password field because they're rude and tacky and we don't like them because that hurts users, uh, we have problems because you have to tab back and forth really quickly and these things have time limits on them. I mean, if I'm lucky, my memory will hold on to that six digit code for a minute, but it's not gonna be good for a whole minute. And sometimes you literally don't have a good way of flipping back and forth before that little thing turns red. If you do try copying 
one in. Again, we still have developers trying not to let us paste anything into our mobile apps anywhere. So we have lots of angry emails to send, but there are things that work against us. What that means essentially um, is that there's lots of risk everywhere that users just have no way of knowing until something has gone wrong. If they want to get it right, they have to do 500 million steps of learning about how these things work. All of the information on Google and on any place you search on the internet doesn't even agree. The first 10 articles that you throw in about two-factor authentication will all be wildly divergent in the facts that they present, the framing that they give to you. And if you're not an expert in this, or you don't have a solid grasp of what you want to accomplish, you don't have a good way to navigate this problem. One of the reasons that we're only at 10% adoption for two-factor authentication is because users know this. If we had apps where you had to tickle an otter's belly or you had to make the dinosaurs boop their noses and that made your authentication happen, I think we might be somewhere around like 12 to 15. It would be very exciting. But also, where are my people who want to make the security stuff fun and happy and just as good as all of the other random stuff that we do on our mobile devices? Why is it kind of cut and dry and it doesn't make sense and steeped in all of this kind of scary, weird stuff? It doesn't have to be that way. Um, so I've done a lot of complaining about what doesn't work, but in reality, this is what we got. It's better to use it than to not use it. But when we are presenting this two-factor, two-raptor world to everybody else on the planet, we have to be really careful about what their threat models are and what their use cases are and what we tell them. Because there is nothing worse than being the person who talked someone into turning this on and then getting the phone call when everything broke and realizing, oh, I already kind of knew that because I go to a school that's doing a rollout and I had education about this, or I am at a workplace with a very enthusiastic security trainer who basically made me learn this and wouldn't let me leave the room until I got it all right. But that's not how it works for everyone. So what are the, some of the things we can do to improve? For one, and this is not an engineering problem, this is just a human problem, we have to know our human beings. Whether our human beings are middle schoolers, whether they're college students, whether they are moms who are just trying to get the mortgage paid and the bills done and raise the kids and take care of their home, or whether it's a whole bunch of nerdy security engineers like me who like to meet up with my friends and fight with each other about what we think is real and what we think is like security fake. Uh, it's really important to understand motivation. It's important to understand what people are trying to accomplish. And it's really important to understand what drives them to change their mind or change their behavior. That's not an engineering problem. Technically, that's a marketing problem. P.S. Once upon a time, I used to work in marketing. So lucky me. But you really have to understand how to get to your audience and how to break through to them in ways that maybe you haven't had to think about before if you're used to arguing about whether you should be using 
I don't know, SHA-256 versus poly cha cha God knows what, somewhere in your blockchain. <laughs> Something else that is really important, and it is an emerging field in security right now, is security economics. Economics aren't necessarily a technical engineering problem, but man, are they a good crash course in thinking, and specifically systems thinking. One of the best things that we can do as engineers and as people thinking about security is looking for ways that we can align incentives with the people who we need to be using, who need to be using what we build. Uh, some companies, for example, on the enterprise front, will give you four to six gigabytes of free storage if you turn on two-factor. That's pretty exciting, especially if you keep it on and they give you an extra bonus every year on Internet Security Day. That's some good incentive alignment. Um, another thing to think about, and this is an engineering problem, it is my favorite engineering problem, process rather, threat modeling. Threat modeling, if you have done it before, is essentially an end-to-end -end exhaustive process of evaluating what's in front of you and deciding you know, what it might be worth to an attacker, how hard it is to attack, and then coming up even with ways that you might attack it, and then figuring out how to deflect those attacks with a little bit of defense in depth and moving forward. One great thing about threat modeling is it is more about holistic security thinking and it gives you opportunities to reduce single points of failure, for sure, but it also makes your brain work out in this mode that your brain's usually not used to having to work out in. Um, another thing that I cannot stress enough too is risk analysis. Humans are bad at risk, even security humans, no matter how smart we are. So learning more about what risk analysis looks like and learning more about the risks that the people we need to adopt security behaviors uh, are, that's going to help us make better decisions for them when we are building things for them. And then Finally, a little bit of design thinking because security is a design problem at its core and lots of usability testing. Usability testing maybe isn't an engineering thing, but there are engineers who work on the front end. There are um, web designers, there are application designers that we can partner with. We can figure out where visual uh, vocabulary is going inside of applications and we can figure out how we could maybe not hide all of these security features back in some left-hand side menu that's like 17 taps deep when we really want someone to set up an app the right way. And then finally, um, it's really important to understand that there's a whole world out there of people who aren't going to learn about technology the way that we have and they're not going to experience it the same way that we have here. Um, once upon a time, I was in South Africa. Actually, it wasn't that long ago. But I visited an area where 70 people shared one iPhone. So think about that for a second. Where we live, it's usually one device per person or one device shared between a mom and the kids or you know, devices shared generally among no more than five people, 70 people and one cell phone. The argument that your average Silicon Valley engineer might make is, well, I can't protect anyone in that situation. 
as someone who is very excited about what's going to happen when we start connecting the rest of the planet, if we do it the right way, I kind of think that's crap. I kind of think that we have a whole bunch of really smart people thinking about security. And maybe there's a way that we could figure out some privacy and some security and some integrity and some assurance for each of those 70 people using the device. But it's not going to come from the thinking that we currently have, where we mandate one device per person all the time. So that being said, um, here are a few different things that you can do over the next month, the next three months, the next six months even, um, to think a little bit more about these usability challenges, especially when you are building fun things and engineering fun things um, in security land. Some of it are, is things like paying attention to how you use two-factor in the first place um, and thinking about what works for you, what's annoying, and what might not even fly across someone else's mind when they're going through the process. If you're lucky and you have Duo, you're just gonna be like tap, 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 and that's it. Duo is wonderful. I wish we could have it for everyone. Uh, but some things make two-factor easier than others, and it's important to be able to spot when you like it and when you don't and describe that in semi-technical terms. Additionally, um, you can start to keep an eye on what people around you think about security behaviors, security improvements, and some of these weird features that start popping up on the news when we have one of those come to Jesus moments and everything got hacked again and everyone let the, pup the passwords out like they're a bunch of puppies. Uh, and then finally, if you are able to find some ways to work security economics and threat modeling into your engineering, into your research, um, and into some of your conversations with people who maybe aren't specializing in security, that's actually a big deal. Because to some of us uh, in engineering land, building secure code actually really isn't about security, it's about quality. So the more you are able to align your thinking with the processes that essentially output, you know, robust, beautiful, functional, well-documented, well-tested code, the better all of this technology stuff is going to be for the people at the other end as well, even if they can't see it. And then finally, um, speaking poorly of end users, calling them stupid, saying not nice things about them, totally not okay. Not in the security industry and security world that so many of us are trying to build. So if you do hit an engineering challenge and people aren't reacting to something you've built in a way that you expected, maybe it's not because they're stupid. Maybe it's just because it's a hard problem and it's not something that one engineering approach is going to solve. It's going to take you 10 different potential solutions to test, play with, and figure out. And even then you won't get to 100% improvement, but you could get really close to 95 to 99. With that, I'm happy to take any questions. I'm happy to make bad dinosaur jokes. Totally up to all of you. Yes. I've seen recently um, in a lot of automated uh, phishing attacks that they'll actually use um, two-factor authentication to scare the user into going into a login field and thinking that they're changing their Instagram password so they get the old password, because you have to enter your yep. current password and then new password and then new password. So it'll basically hit the user's phone 
three times or how many times you want to set it to. Um, and then that dual factor authentication will then just scare the user into changing those passwords. Yeah, so a lot of the things that work on the attack front um, tend right now that I see tend to pretend to be security improvements. Hey, change your password because we think we found it in a breach. Hey, turn on your two factor and change your password because you'll get a million extra Instagram followers. It's really hard to distinguish between what's a real thing and what's a fake thing. And I so wish that we could get some of these people who write TV shows to just sneak the defense scenarios in there. Like, oh, you think that's a crap text message? Well, don't pay attention to it. Just go log into Instagram yourself. If there's a problem, they will tell you. They have to tell you or Congress is going to yell at them at this point. But there's always another way to get around some of these potential security attacks. Part of it is just thinking like, how do I verify this? Like, if I don't wanna trust it, but I wanna check anyway, how much time do I have? Most attackers really want to try to essentially like step on your toes and make you think, oh, you only have five minutes to make a decision. And that's kind of when they've got you. Where if a little bit like me, you just don't pay attention to text messages that you recognize or you don't recognize, or you don't pay attention to emails that aren't from anyone you know anyway, helps a little bit. Maybe it doesn't take you the whole way. But if you're able to identify what someone's doing to try to get you in that elevated state, you're far, far more advanced in that arena than most people who will just flip out because they're scared they're losing all of their Insta God knows what. Yes? So, so like all this two-factor authentication and stuff is good and all, but like what about like the social engineering attacks, like us on the person and like also possibly on the company? Like you say, oh, I lost my phone. I can't get my authentication app to work. Could you send me my code so that I could re-authenticate with my new phone? Like, so what do you think is the solution to like those problems? Because no matter what two-factor authentication we put in place, those are still going to be an issue. Yep. So. Something I think about quite a bit with security is that there's some shared responsibility going on. As the administrator of my company's Google Suite, I'm kind of like, okay, I can accomplish this level of things, but the technological enforcements and settings and configurations I have are only so much. What's actually really important, both for an organization and for a human being just trying to internet, uh, is having a really good, strong set of personal policies that you abide by to reduce bad stuff from happening. If, for example, um, you start to see like funky phishing emails or something that doesn't look right, on one side, it's very natural to have an emotional reaction to it. On the other, if it's that important, there are other ways you can find out. If you make it your rule, that you're not responding to text messages from you know, phone numbers that you don't recognize, you're not clicking on links or doing whatever action a specific text message that just came at you uh, wants you to do, then you're already pretty far out there. There's not really a good answer for social engineering. It is something that has existed pretty much since humans started figuring out how to human. 
it is a problem that's like 50,000 years old. Like we should, we should probably go to the library and go pick out some archaeology books. I can show you some things. But um, instead of thinking about social engineering as this attack that someone's always going to win against you, you have a lot more power than you think you do to just be good at filtering and ignoring. And if it's truly important, it will come back to you in a way that is verifiable. Otherwise, you're gonna be stuck in a position where you have to essentially figure out if the pixels on one email are legitimate or counterfeit. And we have all lost when we are all sitting in front of our computers with like our little spy lenses trying to figure out what's going on and if this is real or fake. How do you see FIDO helping? I mean, you mentioned it with the two-factor authentication with uh, YubiKeys, but there you also support biometrics and other tools like that. Do you see a lot of hope with that? And is it getting better? I get really excited about FIDO for a lot of reasons. Some of those reasons are that I have seen companies try to roll their own two-factor authentication solutions. No, this is a terrible idea. Two factors kind of like encryption. Don't roll your own. We won't be friends. I don't care if you audit it or not. Um, I think essentially with FIDO, like we are thinking more in line with where our users want to go. And we're creating more opportunities for hardened and robust protocols to really, that, that weave into what we're trying to accomplish with IT and with some of our, you know, identity and access management. I have a lot of hope for it, but I'm still a little bit discouraged that adoption is taking longer in some places uh, than we'd like. It's very rare, for example, to have Google and Microsoft actually agree on something. But what about all the people who like their eye devices? They can't really FIDO yet. And for the tools that are trying to be, or the hardware keys that are trying to work with iPhones, because the operating system changes so frequently, because the chips are custom designed, like there's just not a good way to break into kind of that last frontier. So I'm, I'm not sure what the answer is there. I don't know if like I need to figure out how to get all of the Apple engineers and all of the two-factor nerds and like let them have a yelling contest. If you guys have ideas, please let me know. Uh, but there's still some business reasons, I think, that companies haven't really jumped in on it. And I kind of just want to be like, enough business guys, like we're trying to get this solved over here. And, and then when you, how do you know if you're a consumer that a trustworthy, a password manager is trustworthy? Oh my gosh. I wrote a blog about this very recently. Um, there are a few different ways that you can tell, but my three not totally surefire ways of figuring out if something is great or not essentially involve doing a little bit of consumer research. When people buy refrigerators and washing machines and all kinds of other things, they spend days digging on the internet. Um, a little bit of that thinking when looking for software, totally helpful too. Going and looking up um, if any recent security vulnerabilities have been found in a password manager and seeing how the company responded to them is really important. Um, it's entirely possible that some companies see one blog post from a security researcher, um, flip out and try to sue him. That's a bad market indicator and that's a bad security indicator. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if they publish security audits, if they are 
not, I should say this carefully. If you see evidence of them working to be compliant with like PCI or um, SOC2, they do have demonstrable security processes and programs in their company. That tends to mean that they have some more resilience or robustness than a company that doesn't have those things. Um, and then part of it is just seeing if it's regularly developed. You know, using a password manager that was really popular five years ago, but that has no active maintainers, that's a problem. Code's changed a lot in five years. But if you see something that gets updated multiple times a year and has new features and does new fancy stuff and it works with your devices, that's a pretty good way of being able to tell that at least the team behind it is somewhat competent at developing with a specific cadence and updating to make sure that, you know, the predictable crashes between operating system upgrades don't happen to you. So you're talking about the usability. So definitely the biometric-based authentication is, uh, is more, I mean, user-friendly, right? So we've already seen a lot of wide adoption of this kind of method in China. Mm -hmm. So what do you think of this uh, kind of meth uh, authentication technique? And definitely privacy is one of, is the big concern there, how to protect the users privacy, right? So what other thoughts? About I have a lot of feelings about um, mm -hmm. biometrics and some of them are complicated and some are not. A lot of my privacy nerd friends would be the first to stand up here and start screaming, no, no, hell no, that's not happening. This is a terrible idea. What are you going to do? Revoke your face when there's a breach? Mm -hmm. Except that's actually not really reflective of how most consumer implementations of biometrics work. What we tend to see happen, and the biometrics that I'm comfortable with and that I like, um, are those that instead of literally relying on an accurate scan of your thumbprint, um, derive data from this thing that is very much you and use the data they derive from this bit of information to unlock or lock a device or whatever that you need to get into. It's one thing if somebody literally has to keep a scan of my eyeballs in a database. I'm not cool with that. But if you looked at my eyeball, made some magic numbers out of it, and then those magic numbers did some stuff over here, and now I can get in without having to you know, worry about going and getting new eyes in two years when something breaks or crypto cryptographic agility isn't doing what I wanted to do. That's okay. I, I think ultimately for consumers, like the privacy argument isn't going to go as far as some of us privacy advocates would like. So if we can argue more on making sure that the implementation is done in a way that's not harmful and is still respective and consent based and doesn't really require us to go like full on fingerprint erase mode, I think that's probably okay and that's probably where we're heading anyway. All right, thank you. Thank you, Jesse.